From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watts-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, our guest is Christopher Alley, who is the Pioneer's Chair in Telecommunications here at Penn State and author of the book Farm Fresh Broadband, The Politics of Rural Connectivity. And I have to say, uh, rural broadband has been on my list of topics for this show uh, ever since we started it. So I'm excited that we are getting to it today. And I, I think over the the past couple of years during the the pandemic, all the ways that um, you know broadband touches our lives and is essential to our lives have really come into much sharper focus than they even were, you know, back in 2018, 2019 when we started this show. Yeah, I'm really glad that you um, brought Christopher on the show this week. And reading the book and um, some of the articles that he's written, you know, you reflect on your day. Right. So this morning I woke up, I listened to WPSU from North Carolina from my Google home. And then it told me what my schedule was for the day, what the weather is, what the top news stories are. On some days I work from home. I might have office hours on Zoom. I might go to a faculty meeting on Zoom. I touch base with my research groups on Teams. Uh, we're recording this podcast from multiple cities across the country, which can only be done with high-speed internet. Before the day is over, I'll read three newspapers, check in on Twitter like 1,000 times. I'll see my friends on Instagram. If I'm unlucky, I might have to meet a doctor on some sort of secure website thingy. At some point, I'll stream a show with my husband, and then I'll ask some device to wake me up in the morning. And I do most of these things with high-speed internet. So, you know, while it has been argued that this kind of ease and way of life is a luxury, it's become incredibly clear that broadband is a central part of American life and access to broadband mimics, I would argue, kind of any basic utility. People rely on broadband to grocery shop, to, uh, you know, consume news and information, run their businesses, access health care, access government services, fill out forms, sign up their children for school, go to work, take classes at the community college. I mean, we could go on and on. And so, you know, despite the apparent necessity and increasing necessity of broadband access, it is actually not universal across the country. A lot of people are left out. Right. And why is that? I mean, it, it is not dissimilar from other utilities in American history, right? There are rural communities that were very late in terms of getting electricity and phone service. Mm -hmm. And initially, those were understood to be luxuries and eventually became necessities. Mm -hmm. And the in both cases as well, the, uh, the private industry decided that there was not sufficient return on investment for mm -hmm. them to spend money on the infrastructure needed to get these places or getting these services to places that didn't serve many people, right? right. So you had to go a long way with those telephone lines or with that elect electrical lines to get to a community that had 20 people in it. And it just was not worth it to them to do it. And that is what is known in the biz as a market failure. The market is um, incentivizes profit, and if there's not enough profit, they're not going to do it. And so in those cases, 
the government had to step in. And that is what we are seeing or at least talking about right now. I mean, you know, whether they have done it adequately, whether they've done it the right way, those are things we're going to talk about. But the the basic point is that when there's something that the public needs and the market is, for whatever reason, unable or unwilling to to provide that necessity, uh, the government has to step in. That's It's basically that simple. I live in North Carolina right now, and North Carolina has 100 counties, and 80 of them are considered rural. And, you know, we can kind of, I, I, think, I think there's not necessarily a kind of hard and fast definition of what rural means, but one of the things I think is important to note, you know, in this conversation about access and affordability is that um, it's also a matter of equity and racial equity. So I think we tend to think about rural places as being white, but in North Carolina, uh, let's say 12% of the population is black, but one in five people who live in rural North Carolina are black. North Carolina um, is a relatively new destination for Latino immigrants, which is changing the demographics of rural North Carolina. So, you know, this is just kind of one example about how our common sense notions of urban um, being largely home to people of color, while suburban and rurality is being associated as white spaces doesn't really pan out. You know, it's not so cut and dry empirically. So, you know, we know, generally speaking, when when some parts of the population get the cold, people who are historically marginalized get the flu. And so we can kind of think about the there's a rule penalty, right, generally speaking, but the extent to which that is going to be exacerbated by other um, modes of inequality, you know, is also on the table. It's not the case that there's no... In, in many cases, in many uh, counties, rural counties, there is some internet access, but it is a crappy. It's very mm-hmm. bad, very spotty, very sporadic, and also it's more expensive. And mm-hmm. so, so I mean, you, you're getting more, or you're getting less for more, and that right. is also something that happens a lot uh, to to poor people. The other thing that um, that I just want to mention is, you know, when you're talking about inequality. The internet in America is dramatically more expensive than it is yes. in most of the uh, OECD countries, and um, and and that is a a large question, but and we should get into it. But the fact is that this equity issue is not as um, dramatic as it is in uh, Western Europe. Maybe that's something we can pick up on after the interview. Uh, I know uh, Chris and I talk about whether broadband is the one of the last bipartisan issues and some of the more uh, influences of politics. Well, that's a good idea. All right, so let's uh, let's go now to the interview with Christopher Alley. Christopher Alley, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So lots to talk about uh, in the realm of rural broadband. This is actually a topic that has been on my list of episodes for this show since we started back in Fabulous. 2018. That's great. So excited to have this conversation. And, you know, as you say in your book, Farm Fresh Broadband, um, the term rural broadband is something that politicians love to throw around in their stump speeches and these kinds of things. So I thought maybe we could start by just defining it a little bit. So broadband, the official 
official definition of broadband in this country is an always-on internet connection of 25 megabits per second download, 3 megabits per second upload. So what on earth does that mean, right? Um, it basically means that if you if you had that speed as kind of a floor in your house, for instance, you should be able to, you know, binge Netflix while emailing, while social mediaing, right? Basically that you could do what it is that you need to do. Um, there is a big debate right now as to whether or not we need to raise the speed threshold. Um, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, for instance, is proposing to raise it to 120, 100 megabits per second download, 20 megabits per second upload. And the reason for that is that while well, 25.3, which is how we would often talk about this, it might be good enough for one person. It is absolutely disastrous for more than one person living in a house. Moreover, we don't know what we don't know in terms of what the future is going to hold. The average person has 16 internet connected devices in their household. Um, that's everything from smartwatches to toasters to fridges to laptops uh, to gaming consoles, you know, all the things that might have an IP address, washers and dryers, for instance. All of those devices take bandwidth. And so right now, one of the major debates when we're talking about making sure everybody has broadband is what exactly is broadband and what is good enough and what is great. And and I've been an advocate for great broadband. Like in the 1930s, we didn't just say, well, you get electricity for one room. We said you got electricity for the house, right? That to me is the, the difference between good enough electricity and great electricity. And that's the same thing I want for broadband. Now, the question is, what is rural? <laughs> um, and uh, a, a great way, I think, to start that conversation is the fact that the USDA has about 35 definitions of the word rural. Some depend on land use, some de- depend on population. Right now, the kind of the, the, the definition that's generally been floated around is um, a community between 25,000 and, and 50,000 that is not adjacent to a large metropolitan center. So anything kind of under 50,000 might be considered rural so long as it's not like a suburb. Anything under 25,000, even better when we're thinking about rural. Others like to use density as as a marker. The Census Bureau, for instance, has a definition that says like roughly around 92% of the of the country is actually rural, right? Because they basically say everything that's not metro is rural, whereas some use a different definition. And the, And the reason why this is so important is because it matters when we talk about funding. Right. If you have funding for rural broadband, we need to have a basic definition of what does it mean to be rural in America. Um, and that's something we actually lack. And that's something that I hoped to explore in my own book. Yeah. So let's let's put this in terms of population number. So taking everything you just said about what it means to have broadband and what it means to be rural or, or not or live in a, in a rural place. How many people are, are we talking about that lack access to what you describe as, I guess, the good broadband, putting aside like the great question? for the time being. Well, so this is another great, great conversation because the fact of the matter is we don't know how many people are un and under connected because we've done a really bad job at mapping broadband deployment. And one of the reasons why we've done such a bad job is that the FCC, which is in charge of broadband mapping, has allowed mapping to happen at what's called the census block level. And a census block can be anywhere between a couple of streets or a neighborhood in, let's say, Manhattan to 8,000 square miles in Alaska because it depends on population. Uh, So right now, Now, when we map broadband, we say so long as one building within a census block can have has broadband or has the potential to be connected within 10 business days, that entire census block is served, 100 percent served Mm. with broadband. What that means is that we have dramatically over 
exaggerated the level of connectivity in this country. Most reports say that the FCC has actually exaggerated broadband connectivity by about 50%. So here's an example. Right now, the FCC will tell you that about 21 million people lack connectivity. Most estimates say it's actually about 42 million. And then another 120 million, according to Microsoft, connect to the internet but below broadband speeds. So we're looking at somewhere between, well, let's say 42 million, somewhere between 20 and 42 million lack it entirely and upwards of 120 million, one third of the population lack it at adequate speeds to kind of do what it is that so many of us take for granted. So there are so many digital divides in this country. Um, And I should also add that it's not just a rural urban issue. 18% of New York City doesn't have access to the internet. So, you know, again, politicians love to say this is a rural issue. It is. Yes, it is a rural issue. It's also a tribal issue. It's also an affordability issue. It's also an urban issue. It's also a minority community issue because it's fundamentally about inequality. For the 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 households that are not able to access broadband, what does their connection look like? Is it primarily, you know, doing things on your phone over the cell network? Is it still like the land of dial-up modems? Like what what's going on in these these households, these communities? So, I mean, one of the crazy things is that 2 million people still use dial-up in this country and 60,000 farms still use dial-up, which is ridiculous. Um, about 85% of the American population have a smartphone. Um, 15% of the population, according to the Pew Foundation, are smartphone only. And a college of mine, Nicholas Matthews, who is an assistant professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and I, we did a study in Surrey County, Virginia, and it is the least, or it was when we conducted our study, the least connected county in the Commonwealth of Virginia, about 3.6% fixed connectivity. And we were trying to kind of t- understand what is life like in a broadband desert? And one of the things we found is a lot of it, A, life is harder, <laughs> um, and B, a lot of life is defined by waiting, waiting for the potential for an internet connection. Sometimes if folks had satellite. Um, Satellite broadband is notoriously slow and notoriously brutal. They will wait to download things when when the network clears up. One family that we talked to described themselves as a second shift family because they'll stay up all night because that's when their bandwidth is faster because they use a combination of, I think it was satellite and hotspots. So it's expensive, it's time consuming, it's defined by waiting. Um, and, and what we're seeing a lot in rural communities is if you don't have connectivity, you're, you lose a lot of young people, right? I mean, um, and you also lose the potential for telework. We, we learned during the pandemic, we saw this urban flight during the pandemic, but only if you had high capacity broadband. Yeah, and this this issue of the the brain drain, you know, people leaving these communities. We had Congressman Ro Khanna on the show several months ago. He talked about this. I think he brings maybe some Silicon Valley utopianism to this. We could talk about whether whether you you agree with that or not. But um, he sort of frames it as you know, if you if we're able to connect these communities, the jobs will come, the opportunities will come. It will all follow. Do you share that optimism? I mean, it's it's a beautiful, wonderful thought. I don't think this is a field of dream situation. This is not build it and they will come. The inverse, though, is much more correct. If you don't build it, you will lose. Broadband is a tool for economic and social development. Um, it is not the, 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 the end-all, be-all, right? So we know that we absolutely – communities need high-speed, high-capacity broadband. And that goes to everything from running your credit card, right? That requires an internet connection. Getting money out of an ATM requires an internet connection. Paying for gas requires an internet connection. Um, so all of these things that we take for granted make life easier, whether or not it will guarantee – 
jobs while they're not on guarantee a company to relocate. We're not sure about that. Mm. But what I can tell you is that there was one study that found that high-speed connectivity accounted for between 60% and 100% of a company's decision to relocate to Mm. a rural community. So they are absolutely looking. And there are tons of examples of communities that became connected and then use that to marshal and promote themselves and and marshal their communities Mm -hmm. to attract businesses, to attract schools, and also, again, to keep young people working, living, and thriving in a lot of these rural communities. And I think this is particularly true in the Appalachian region, where we're looking to reinvent what economic development looks like. Yeah, and you you bringing up the Appalachian region reminds me, of course, of the um, Tennessee Valley Authority. And, you know, we we have in in some ways experienced this this problem before, whether whether it's electricity, whether it's telephone, cable television, all of these things. So we have seemingly made our way through. I mean, what what is what's the barrier this time? What's different about this time? Is it maybe that we just we just need to allow for more time, perhaps like what what do you think is is maybe similar and different thinking about these previous technologies? I mean, that's, that's a great question. I actually devote the first chapter of my book to comparing how is it that we connected the countryside with electricity and telephony in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and we continue to fail at broadband today. One of the, one of the you know, and I hate to sound cynical here, but one of the major barriers has been uh, what we would call big telco or the largest telecommunications companies. So what happened in the 1930s when the FDR government realized that so much of rural America, which at that time was synonymous with farmers, um, were not connected to the electrical grid. They created what was called the Rural Electrification Administration, and that was a kind of a loan-granting agency. Um, and it would create cooperatives, electric cooperatives throughout the country. There are 900 electric cooperatives now, most of them getting their starts in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. It was tremendously su- successful. So they kind of bypassed quote-unquote, big power and went local. They did that again with telephone in the 1950s, realizing that a lot of rural farmers did not have a telephone anymore after the Great Depression. So once again, the REA came in and kind of incentivized local telephone cooperatives. And there are hundreds of local telephone cooperatives now across the country as well. Both, by the way, electric cooperatives and and telephone cooperatives are doing amazingly well with broadband as well, which is super cool. Jump ahead 100 years, and why haven't we kind of been able to marshal that kind of um, zeitgeist, Uh, especially when the president said last year, broadband is the next electricity, right? We've often heard this. What does it mean? The difference is that we have trusted the largest telecommunications companies to do this, but we have put the threshold so low for them that they used it as, in what I, in my book I call it, they used it as a ceiling rather than a floor. So we, this country was very late in funding broadband. We didn't have a standardized broadband funding program really until 2014. And at that point, what we did is we looked at the 10 largest telecommunications companies in the country and said, here's a billion dollars, we hope for the best. We gave them very low build-out thresholds. There was very little accountability. And so, yes, did these companies follow the letter of their law? Yeah, but the, the law was so lax that they didn't have to do much. In particular, they didn't have to think for future needs. They were just, they ended up just deploying what was called DSL, digital subscriber line, which is telephone lines, copper lines. They weren't putting in fiber. They weren't thinking about connectivity 10 years ahead. They were thinking about connectivity five years before. And now what we end up having are like islands and oases and deserts, right? In some rural, usually in county seats, we've got a pretty good level of connectivity. Anything 
everything else. Mm-hmm. We've got a broadband desert. Um, some hard to reach areas are completely blank. A lot of this hodgepodge, and that was because of really poor funding decisions by the Federal Communications Commission in kind of 2014, 2015, 2016. We are hopefully now with the infrastructure package mm-hmm. and the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, the NTIA, which is managing a new $42.5 billion grant. Hopefully history will not repeat itself and will really make some good headway into bridging the digital divide. Yeah, I, I want to come back to, to what's happened since, since your book came out. But, you know, you bring up these, these idea, this idea of, of cooperatives. The, you, you tell some really fascinating stories of, of you know, broadband cooperatives in your, in your book. I'm thinking about one in particular from Rock County, Minnesota, yeah. um, I, I believe it is. And I love that you, you talk about that as, you know, a, a way of, of democratizing broadband policy. So tell us about what's happening up in, in Minnesota. Well, one, uh, chapter four of my book is, de- is dedicated to the story of Rock County and and the Rock County Alliance, and and this was a community that I had the privilege of spending some a few days in during what was called the Rural Broadband Road Trip, uh, where my hound dog and I drove across the country learning about broadband, and it was amazing and collecting stories. And so Rock County, about ten years ago, wanted a fiber optic network. Rock County is in the southwestern pocket of the state, uh, bordering South Dakota and Iowa. Um, it is the nutcracker capital of the Midwest and also has a really excellent hot dish. So they wanted this fiber optic network and they wouldn't settle for anything less. And they really struggled working with the large providers. Large providers were not at all interested in a rural county of 10,000 people. And we see this time and time again, right, that the, the market has failed <laughs> for rural communities. And so what happened is that they found a telephone cooperative in South Dakota, a local one. It was just across the border. The telephone cooperative put in some money. Rock County bonded itself for a million dollars, and it put in money, and then it won a $5 million uh, grant from the state. And Minnesota, I should say, has been this kind of pioneer and trendsetter in how to think through high-speed connectivity at the kind of universal scale for the state. With all of this, uh, Rock County was able to push out a fiber optic network that covers roughly 99% of the county. It's not saying that 99% of the county subscribe, but can subscribe to this amazing fiber optic network. So what a great story of community building, right? Knowing they're bringing in partners, bringing in the state and having this phenomenal county supervisor and and, um, county administrator rather and board of supervisors who are really willing to to work with their providers and and to work with their community to bring connectivity. So the other thing that's on my mind thinking about these local issues, we're also hearing a lot now, particularly since 2020 about, uh, you know, uh, People coming into local government that have more anti-democratic tendencies, right, pushing local government farther to the right and trying to really decrease the role that government plays in in citizens' lives. I mean, do do you do you worry about that or are there is is this an issue you think that might be able to transcend some of those more anti-democratic tendencies? You know, I I think broadband connectivity is one of the very 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 few bipartisan issues that we can we can all rally around and and maybe it is not only that maybe it can also be a way that we can bring ourselves together on other issues. You have both Republican and Democrat and independent um, uh, elected officials campaigning on this, talking about this, needing this, wanting this. Where we are seeing a difference, though, is um, what is broadband. Oftentimes, uh, those on 
on, let's say, the further right of the political continuum want to keep the definition lower, much more in line with maybe some corporate interests than those than those on maybe a more progressive side. But there is there is a bipartisan consensus around the need for connectivity. There is also, surprisingly enough, bipartisan consensus on the need for the federal government to step in because the market has failed. We it is is an empirical fact. If the market had succeeded in this, we would have universal connectivity because we have surrendered all of connectivity to the private market. Um, uh, uh, certain examples of municipal broadband uh, excluded. But there is an agreement that the market has failed. So therefore, there is an agreement that the federal government needs to step in and, and incentivize and subsidize. Texas, Texas, for instance, uh, just launched um, a broadband plan, uh, just has a new broadband office. It's really capable. They're doing really cool things. What they did not do is allocate any state funding. They are entirely dependent upon the federal government for funding. So just an example of a state, a conservative state that is getting behind the idea of connectivity but is not really willing to invest any state money into this. So that's Texas is rather unique in that regard. A lot of states, Virginia, for instance, just um, allocated $700 million to broadband. Illinois, $430 million. New York, I think $550 million. California, a couple billion. So, you know, a lot of states are putting state money behind it. Texas has, I think, the... Oh, I don't say the right idea because they should be putting state money into it, but um, at least they're on board with the idea that we need connectivity. Mm-hmm. And this this idea of the you know kind of partisan divide also gets to, to questions of of misinformation and, and and access to information. If if I'm not mistaken, that that paper you referenced earlier from Virginia did that also look at news deserts in addition it, to it broadband did. deserts? Yeah. So we were curious about life not only in a broadband desert but in a local news desert. Where do people get news and information if not from the internet? Um, one of our major findings, and again, I should say we because that study took place during COVID, we couldn't go to Surrey County. We ended up doing phone interviews. A lot of people got news from word of mouth. A lot of people used people who were connected in their communities. A few people who were became the kind of these opinion leaders, uh, which is a very old school mass communication term. And then the Dollar General became this place for congregating around news and information. There is, of course, the thought that, oh, well, if we bring broadband to these communities, it will immediately trigger extremism, immediately trigger ultra conservatism or, you know, some might say ultra ultra leftism as well. I'm not, you know, uh, there's there's kind of these arguments on both sides of the political spectrum. But it reminds me that there is that the digital divide is actually plural. It's a digital divides. And one of the crucial things that we haven't talked about until recently in policy is around skill development and digital literacy. That is part and parcel of having a, you know, if if the if wires on the ground are useless unless you know how to use them. Right. And again, that's where our earlier conversation around it won't wires on the ground will not guarantee economic development in a rural or, or remote or, or tribal community. Um, the absence will spell some disaster. So it means that we need to be thinking not only about connectivity, but affordability, and then what's called larger other issues of digital inclusion and digital mm-hmm. equity, including skills and digital literacy. So what we're actually seeing now at the federal level is uh, there's a new state digital equity program. Um, states have to have digital equity plans. There's a ton of funding available for it, a couple billion dollars for digital equity programs. Um, so hopefully we'll see not only a rise in connectivity, but a rise in 
in digital literacy, digital sophistication, digital competencies, uh, again, that many of us might take for granted, um, but hopefully we will see that kind of training and skill development mm-hmm. arise as well. Again, there's no magic bullet to, mm-hmm. you know, fighting mis- and disinformation, especially um, especially here where this also is a, a contentious political issue. But I do think that as we think about connectivity, we need to think immediately about affordability and literacy as well. And, and uh, you know, there are some states that are doing very well in this regard. So you you mentioned before that um, you know this is obviously and this idea of a rural broadband and expanding broadband broadband access is is a big part of the Biden administration's agenda. So mm-hmm. bring us up to speed on on what's happened since your book was published. Holy smoke! So <laughs> much has happened. I mean, you know, one of the um, one of the frustrations with academic publishing is that it takes a while to get published. Although I do I do think that Farm Fresh came out at a you know kind of an incredible moment where where this country was captured by the conversation around broadband, no less so because of the pandemic, where I think what the pandemic did, I mean, of all of the terrible, all of the painful moments that have happened because of the pandemic, what it also did is we have ended the conversation around whether or not connectivity is a luxury. We know now it is a need, it is a necessity, it is a utility, it is a right, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Biden administration has stepped up uh, tremendously. So the infrastructure package included $65 billion specifically for broadband. $42 billion of that will go uh, towards deployment. And that, again, is run by the NTIA. Um, and they're just getting rolling on that. So what's going to happen with that money is that it's actually going to go to the states. And then states are going to choose who's the winner's of this kind of these subsidies and it's for providers to well it's to incentivize providers mm-hmm. public or private or cooperative uh, to connect their communities so every state is guaranteed a hundred million dollars and depending on the level of unconnection in the state that will determine how much extra mm-hmm. you get out of that 42 billion um, I want to say Texas is in line somewhere between it's Texas being one of the least connected mm-hmm. states in the country is in line somewhere between one and three billion it might be the largest winner in in broadband and and forgive me when I can't I can't think of what Pennsylvania is, is going to be mm-hmm. allocated but I would imagine more than a billion as well so states to be prepared for that one of the things every state has to do is file a five-year broadband and digital equity plan uh, so a lot of my work is going to be focused on on those plans right now. Um, there was also uh, out of that $65 billion, $14 billion for affordability. That's the Affordable Connectivity Program, which again subsidizes subscriptions for low-income families at $30 a month and $75 a month on tribal land. $2.75 billion for digital equity, $2 billion for a USDA broadband program, $1 billion for tribal connectivity and money for bonds and mm-hmm. other grants. So it is tremendous. This is the largest public investment in telecommunications in the country's history. You know, what was also really interesting is that Congress, when it passed the Infrastructure Act, didn't make the FCC steward of this money. It made this other organization, the NTAA, and I think it's because we've seen Congress lose faith in the FCC's ability to mm-hmm. subsidize and, and get the results necessary for broadband deployment. So it'll be really interesting to see what NTAA is doing. To me, though, all of my eyes are on what states are doing um, because they will be the final arbiters of a colossal amount of money. So a lot of my work right now is how do I make sure that states are equipped and empowered to make these decisions? Mm-hmm. One last question for you, Chris. Um, so, you know, our audience is, is very passionate, obviously, um, about democracy, but also all, you know, about political reform and, you know, working at the at the grassroots. So if, if listeners want to get involved and, uh, you know, have a say in digital equity or bringing connectivity, whether it's to their community or communities of friends and family members, like what what are steps people should take. 
That's a great question. Um, and I love the idea of like, let's mobilize our local mm. digital champions um, because they are so absolutely needed because there's going to be times in which we've stopped talking about broadband, but we haven't solved it. So we need people to keep the fire alive in every community. First things first, uh, you should figure out if your community has a broadband authority and, and who's in charge of broadband deployment. There's usually a ton of meetings that go on. You could organize, for instance, a listening session. If you know if you had the capacity to bring in like your board of supervisors and your providers, talk to your providers. What are their plans? I mean, it's a lot of, it's, to be honest, it's a lot of conversation um, just around trying to figure out what your, the provider's plan is, what your elected officials plan. And if there isn't a plan, you need to get one in place. It doesn't mean that that person has to draft it, but to be pushing your elected officials to be developing a broadband plan for your community, for your neighborhood, for your county, that's all going to be absolutely crucial. Some communities have even taken to thinking about, do we mobilize like the Boy Scouts to do broadband mapping? Um, and I've been to a ton of town halls, which have been so amazing, uh, where people are able just to kind of share their frustrations around connectivity. And usually these bring in, uh, you know, to meet some Congress people or folks from the NTAA to really hear these stories, because these stories are impactful. So collect stories and use these stories to fuel your connectivity efforts. And of course, if I can ever be of help to anyone who's listening, please, please, please reach out to me and be happy to ha- um, have more conversations around getting our communities connected. Great. Well, we will uh, link to your your Twitter profile and your your Penn State contact information in the show notes and in your book as well. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. Thanks Chris. for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jenna, for that great conversation with Chris. I learned a lot, and one of the things that stood out to me is that we all know that on and under connectivity is a problem, but actually how big the problem is, is unknown because methods of evaluation and measurement are inconsistent or much too conservative. So I, I you know, find it fascinating that the U.S. government does not have an accurate depiction of broadband connectivity, even though every American president since Clinton has said that this is a problem that needs to be solved. Right. I mean, and you can see why that's the case, right? I mean, you know, for um, for Republicans, this is their constituency largely. Right. right? Mm -hmm. And so when their constituency says we want this and when it's clear that the uh, the market is not providing this adequately, then, you know, just in terms of just the most basic political instinct of meeting the needs of your constituency, mm-hmm. the Republicans want it. And for Democrats, it's like, yeah, we want to, you know, everything that they claim to represent, you know, government helping the the part of the population that is less well served and that is addressing the is- fundamental issue of inequality through government action. That's a government, that's a democratic thing. And this is a way to do that. And so if we have everybody in agreement and we've had presidents since Clinton who have addressed, who have acknowledged the issue and desire to solve it, why is it that we're still in this position? And I mean, it's worth talking about that, right? There's a lot of things that that kind of go into that, right? Yeah. So one of the things that stands out to me is one of the things that Chris uh, Ali talks about, but also you, Chris Beam, talked about earlier is this business of market failure. And I would make an argument that one of the problems that we have 
is that both Democrats and Republicans have, you know, for the past 40 years, all kind of seen problems through a neoliberal logic, which centers markets, even when they've proven not to be interested in stepping up to the plate. And so people believe the market will solve the problem. And then when it doesn't, people suggest that the government shouldn't be in the business of solving a problem that the market should. And it's just this circular logic. I think, I mean, I would make an argument that there's a difference in degree, not in kind, across Democrats and Republicans on this issue, which is why we see a lot of public-private partnerships instead of kind of more robust federal standard, higher standards, um, coordination, collaboration, so on and so forth. So, you know, in the meantime, the digital divide is getting deeper. It widens. It captures more problems, brain drain, um, lack of access to health care, economic development, so on and so forth. But it's also still the case that, you know, and if it, even if it is bipartisan, you're going to have uh, a lot of push and pull in terms of uh, who does what and how expensive it is, is etc. But I want to get back to another issue here. And, you know, I said before that the United States average consumer spends a lot more on um, broadband than they do in, in Western Europe. And I, you know, I looked this up because I just wanted to be correct. And one of the reasons why it's it's um, it's expensive is a very a Republican reason, um, a, a very neoliberal reason. Right? There's insufficient competition among mm-hmm. providers, mm-hmm. and that's true in in even places like State College. Right? I mean, the argument is that. About 70% of American consumers have one provider in their area. And when you have that, then that provider can set the terms in terms of what is available and how much it costs. And if you don't like it, oh, well, you can do without the Internet, right? In Chris's book, he talks about the politics and policy of good enough that, you know, um, in these kind of public private partnerships, there's little oversight, there's reduced transparency. And when the U.S. government hands over resources to private telecommunication companies, not only is there very little oversight, but there's actually low barriers to claim success. The standards are low. So, you know, the U.S. government might only require um, companies to provide like 10 megabits per second when broadband starts at 25 megabits per second. You can't do much on the low end. And I I was kind of trying to get my mind around, like, what do these numbers mean? And one analogy that a person suggested was that 10 megabits per second um, with, like, upload speed of one megabits per second is kind of like having electricity in one room of your house. And or you think about um, when we kind of had to go home during COVID and people had to turn off their cameras and they couldn't do this and they couldn't do that. So we're like basically taxpayers and, you know, through these fees uh, for our own kind of, you know, our cell phone bills and our Internet bills, we're subsidizing large companies to provide subpar broadband access to our fellow citizens and residents and Americans. Um, We're subsidizing subpar connectivity. When you have money driving technology, 
or when technology is an opportunity to uh, to make money, it's going to develop and it's going to develop very quickly. There's strong incentives to do that. And, you know, that's the free enterprise system at its best. Legislation doesn't work that way. Right. It's always slow. It's always compromise. It's always, uh, well, we'll do this because we can do this, right? And so he talks about this as a forever problem. And, and I think that's a really good lesson, <laughs> not just for, for rural broadband, but just generally, that legislation is always going to be behind and it's always going to be trying to catch up. And it's almost always going to solve the problem that existed mm-hmm. three years ago, yeah. let alone. And so it's not the moment it starts, it's inadequate. And then the technology just keeps moving and it becomes more inadequate. And, and so I can understand this kind of frustration that people feel. I mean, it's all over the place. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's where he says, you know, if you don't build it, you will lose. Not, you know, if you build it, they'll come. I think that difference makes a difference. Um, And that we're seeing that as time goes on, people are, you know, young people are going to want to move. Communities are not going to develop. They're not going to be potential hubs of innovation. And so, you know, there's no no company is going to want to come to someplace that doesn't have good broadband. Right. Irrespective of any other issues. Yes. I got to believe that for most companies, that would be a deal killer. I think the other thing that is worth bringing up is kind of the overlapping issues that we've talked about before. One that comes to mind is local news. So there are places that not only don't have local news sources, but they also don't have broadband access. And so we can think about what that means for the politics of that place, um, of those places, the kinds of additional labor that people have to go through to get needed information to make informed decisions, and also like just the potential for the rumor mill to do the work of informing local residents. Because of the misinformation, because of the algorithms that ratchet up who you see and what they say, it can only exacerbate the the kind of um, partisan divides that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. If you suddenly were to make broadband available, it doesn't mean that er these people are suddenly going to be, you know, reading The Economist or, you know, downloading, I don't know, democracy works, right? But if you don't do that, if you don't make that option available, you're guaranteed to have these kind of um, information deserts. And that's not good for democracy. All of this is a matter of or turns on framing broadband as a public utility mm-hmm. and no longer as a, uh, a consumer choice. Mm-hmm. And even by uttering that word, I am sure there are Comcast executives all over Philly who are having out palpitations, right? But I don't think there's any way around it. If it's a necessity and if it is, if the, if equality, if the, the, the goal of equality is directly associated with the well-being of our democracy, not to mention our economy, then I don't think you have any choice but to see it that way. Yeah. And, and once you do that, once you reframe the question, then all these issues 
um, appear completely different. And, you know, I think we'll get there, but how soon and, and what difference it makes and will government do a good job? I mean, all those, you know, because sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Right. Mm -hmm. And so all those questions remain open. But I also think that you have, you know, eventually that's where we have to go. I could not have said it better. I mean, Jenna was right that this is a very good subject for us to talk about. And it was mm -hmm. a great interview. And Chris, um, really interesting. And the, the as we've so often found, the implications of these kind of flat kitchen table issues to fundamental questions about government and democracy are there if you just kind of like, you know, what did you say? Part the weeds. And, mm -hmm. and we saw that here. So for the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Candace Watt-Smith. Thank you for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kugler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.